The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark 10, 32 through 52. This is God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those with whom, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over to them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving, Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing our series through Mark's Gospel, and we're looking at the life of Jesus. And uh, tonight we come to the end of the middle section of, of Mark's Gospel, which, as we've seen, is primarily about two overlapping themes. The first is, what Jesus came to do. Three times, Jesus, from chap- middle of chapter 8 until uh, chapter 10, tells about what he came to do, that he came to die. In chapter 8, he tells us, the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and rise on the third day. He says the same thing in chapter 9, and he says it again here in chapter 10. The second major theme of this section is discipleship following Jesus, so that he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or, this is later in chapter 9, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And we get a very similar version of that here in our passage tonight as well. And the reason I highlight that is because In this section, what Jesus is trying to teach us 
is that the cross and the life of discipleship cannot be separated. They go hand in hand. To put it in a word, to follow Jesus, to follow after his cross, is a life of humility, of self-giving sacrifice for the good of others. That Jesus is helping us to see, and we've already seen it if you've been around the past few weeks, that to be a follower of Jesus is to experience the imprint of the cross on your life. Jesus conceives of no other way to have a relationship with him. So we have these two themes of what he came to do, to die on the cross, but also what that means for anyone who would follow after him. And this is precisely the problem that the disciples continue to wrestle with. I could put it maybe in a question. Is there a way to be with Jesus, to be one of his followers, but yet not have to really go where he's going to go? Is it possible to benefit from Jesus, or to use terms that we've, we've looked at already, to experience the glory and the power of Jesus, but not have to experience suffering and hardship and sacrifice? That's the problem that the disciples have been wrestling with, and I think it's exactly the problem that we all face, too. And here again, in this passage, for the the third time, Jesus, he predicts his coming death and his resurrection, and again we see the disciples respond in a way that shows they really have no idea what he's talking about. And it's worth pointing out, after each time that Jesus predicts his coming suffering and death, uh, at least... One of the three pillars of the, of the 12 disciples, either Peter, James, or John, are the ones who speak first. Those who are the closest to Jesus are the ones who give voice to the greatest misunderstanding of Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so the temptation, I think, for us, especially when we look at this story of James and John and their bold, audacious question for Jesus and their request for him is simply to to think, what is wrong with these guys? Why, Why do they keep missing it? How do they keep missing it? Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over. But what I think we ought to be asking, if that's especially our reaction, is... Well, if they're missing it that badly, how are we missing it? How are we missing right now what Jesus is trying to teach us about his purpose for coming, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him? And in order to do that, I want to look at this passage with you through the theme of humility tonight. I want to look at the need for humility, the source for humility, and then the practice of humility. So first, let's look at the need for it and hone in here in verses 35 to 44 for a a couple moments. Here we have this surprising request of James and John. And what, what makes it so surprising is that it follows, again, right after Jesus has said, that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And James and John, with no intervening uh, narrative detail that Mark gives us, 
they come up to him and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we want. Do whatever we ask you to do. I don't know about you, but that just strikes me as (laughs) comical. That'd be like my... Any one of my boys saying, okay, I'm not going to ask you yet what I want you to do. I just want you to tell me beforehand, do whatever I ask you. To which my answer would be, dude, this conversation's over. (laughs) That's not how this is going to work. And amazingly, Jesus listens to them. He responds to them with patience. Despite the fact their question reveals nothing but... Pride and self-interest. Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Here, the disciples make this great claim to be Jesus' right and left man in his kingdom, in his glory. And I think it's also very interesting to point out right now in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began, began to be indignant at James and John. It's not like James and John are the only two who wanted to ask this question. All 12 of them wanted to ask this question. And my, if we could read between the lines a little bit, the other ten, they're just mad they didn't get to it first. <laughs> they're indignant at James and John. They wanted these seats of glory, of honor, of status, of privilege next to Jesus. And it's worth asking, what is the error that they're making? Jesus uses some metaphors and images here to help help us to see this, and I think it's an error that we make. Here Jesus, in response to these disciples, says to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And then as if they already haven't overstepped their competence, they say, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. What's happening here? If I could summarize it for us, the disciples' error is that they separate Jesus' glory from the cross. That is where they go wrong time and time again. They separate Jesus' glory from the the cross, but what Jesus teaches us here is that for him, they are one and the same thing. His glory and his cross are one and the same thing. So when he says here, you don't know what you're asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's picking up on metaphors from the Old Testament. Almost always in the Old Testament, the cup that he is here using refers to God's wrath and judgment upon human sin and rebellion against him. And the the image here of baptism carries with it the, the, the idea of being overwhelmed, consumed. So the image that Jesus is giving is, I am going to drink 
this cup and I will be overwhelmed by it. I will be consumed by it. And for Jesus, this is the great irony for us, that Jesus' moment of greatest glory is on the cross. That's what the disciples don't understand. There is no way to sit at his right hand and at his left hand. There's no way to get there apart from this cross. And in fact, what we discover is that the glory of Jesus is most clearly revealed on the cross because it's on the cross that the love of God is most clearly revealed. On the cross is where we see God's just wrath and punishment against our sin and rebellion poured out on His Son so that His free grace, His unending unstopping, always and forever love would be poured out on you and on me. And the disciples continue to try to pull apart Jesus' glory from his cross, and they are the one and the same thing. And so Jesus here, if we could put it this way, that the disciples essentially are saying to Jesus in their demand, in their question, that what they really want, they're looking for a crown without a cross. They're looking for glory without suffering and honor without humility. And Jesus, in response to them, in verses 42 to 44, gives them an entirely new vision of greatness, an entirely new vision of what glory really involves. Here in verse 42, and he says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Jesus here is describing the ways in which most people try to gain influence. How they try to gain leverage over other people. They try to seek after and acquire power over other people, to get control over other people and their circumstances. They try to get wealth and connections. That this is is how the world, and in our heart of hearts, how we sort of intuitively live the world, this is how we try to gain influence in order to get our way. And Jesus is saying, "That that cannot be so if you follow me. And he, instead, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's, as one writer puts it, it's instead as if Jesus says to us this, I'm calling you to a totally different approach. The route to gaining influence is not taking power. It's as if Jesus is saying, He wants us to be so sacrificially loving that the people around you, even the people who don't believe what you believe, will soon be unable to imagine this place without you. They'll trust you because they see you're not only out for yourself, but you're out for them too. 
Do you see what Jesus is saying here? That for, for the cross to make an imprint on your life means that you will begin to live your life in such sacrificial humility and generosity. The people around you won't be able to imagine what it would be like if you weren't there with them. Isn't that a profound calling and hope and mission for the church? That we as a community would live such sacrificial lives of humility and generosity that the people of Lakeview and Avondale and the city of Birmingham would miss us if we were not here. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's his vision of greatness for his people. That the people that you live with every day, your spouse, your children, your roommate, your friends, your parents even, that for the gospel to take root in your life, that the one thing they would know about you is that you are not just living for yourself, but that you were out for their good too. I'll give you a somewhat infuriating example for me, but perhaps comedic to you. Is dealing with my boys around Xbox. The single greatest way one of my sons realizes that one of their brothers is really out for his good and not just for his own is he shares his Xbox time. There are all kinds of small ways every day here that Jesus is giving us a vision of greatness that looks like his life. Because if the cross is anything, it's Jesus saying, I'm not simply interested in myself. I'm not out for my status or my honor or my glory. I'm out for giving it away and giving it to you. Now, Howard, there is a very important question that we need to ask when we talk about this need for humility and this vision of greatness that Jesus gives to his disciples and and is calling us to. And here's the question. What's to keep anyone from living an unselfish life for... Let me say it again. What's to keep anyone from living unselfish lives for selfish reasons? How do you know if you're living an unselfish life that isn't actually self-serving? Here's here's how this often works. And there's plenty of of secular uh, literature about this. One of the greatest ways that people talk about finding meaning in your life, finding value and purpose, is to live an unselfish life. To give things away, to spend time serving and caring for those less fortunate. But almost always, the reason given for living such a life is you will be fulfilled. You will find meaning. It brings purpose into your life. But before we move on, you've got to think about that. So ask the question, well, really then, who am I living for? Who am I being unselfish for? I think the answer is, you can live a very unselfish life and yet still be incredibly selfish. So how do you get out of that problem? 
How do you get to a point where you might actually grow to live in a selfless life for its own sake, not as a means to another end? I think the answer is it brings us to the source of humility. Where do we find this kind of humility? Now remember here that Jesus, in verses 32 to 34, he repeats again for the third time what he came to do. He leaves us in, in no doubt about the fact that he understands central to his mission on earth was to suffer and die. He repeats this three different times. But here in this version, in verses 33 and 34, we get a little bit more detail. He tells us where it's going to happen. It'll happen in Jerusalem, which remember where, where they're headed. They're on the way to Jerusalem. But also he tells us who's going to do it. And he says here that the chief priests will hand him over. And they will condemn him to death. And then they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles who will then mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. See, what I want you to see here is that the way in which Jesus describes his death again and again tells us something distinctive about Christianity. It's distinctive in this sense that whatever Jesus' death and and, and suffering and resurrection means, it draws the harshest, most angry response from two very different kinds of people. That Jesus' death and resurrection invites, even draws, the hostility of the religious people and the irreligious people. Here you've got the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, wanting to condemn him and see him die. And you have the Gentiles, the irreligious people, mocking him, spitting on him to the point of killing him. Now what that ought to tell you is what Jesus is doing, the good news he brings is utterly different than how the world understands religion and how it understands irreligion. How it understands to live a really, really good life or how it understands to do whatever you want and live according to your whim. It's something entirely different. But what might that thing be? What makes Christianity so unique? Jesus tells us here in verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. So Jesus has told us three different times what he came to do. Here is the first time that Jesus tells us why he came to do it. He didn't come just to put on a big show or to be a big spectacle or to be a martyr, someone who lived a virtuous moral life that everyone should follow. And that was the end of it. He did not come to be a revolutionary. He came to live and die to give his life, as he says, as a ransom for many. Now, what does he mean here when he says to give his life as a ransom for many? This word ransom is is one of the 
most significant words. It's very close to the idea of redemption. They're economic terms. They have to do with buying back something. And in particular, ransom means it involves a process of release by the payment of a price, usually a very costly one. It's often in the first century especially used to describe what happens or the process of buying the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. It's a ransom price. And Jesus here is equating his life with a ransom price. That Jesus, like I said, didn't come just to make a big spectacle. He came to buy you back. He came to buy you back at the cost of his own life. And when Jesus here says to give his life as a ransom for many... The idea here of uh, the preposition there for, before the word many, is also the same, carries the same idea as in the place of or as a substitute for. So this idea of ransom means that Jesus has come to pay the price with his own life in your place. The price that you, with your life, owe. He in your place will pay with his life. That is why Jesus has come to give his life as a ran- it's a substitutionary sacrifice. And when we begin to see this, we begin to see the, the absolute absurdity of James and John and, and even the other ten disciples at how far removed they are yet from understanding why Jesus has come. And what you need to see here is, this is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, as he refers to himself, the Son of Man, saying, at the cost of my life, I will put myself where you deserve to be put, so that you can be where I deserve to be. I want you to think about this for a moment. This ought to tell you two things. One how valuable you are, and number two, how utterly lost you are. This is the God of the universe, infinite cost to himself, at infinite cost to his own life, saying, you are so valuable to me that I will die in your place. Nothing will keep me from doing everything that has to be done in order to buy you back. But here's what it also means. So great is your sin. So great is your rebellion. So great is your selfless selfishness that the Son of God had to die to pay that price. Do you see how those two things go together on the cross? Your infinite value and worth, but also what you deserve, the infinite wrath and judgment of God, both of which are fulfilled and met in Jesus. Now, only when that begins to take root in your life, when you begin to see that Jesus came to die for you, will we be able to serve others, not because we need to, 
but because you want to. It's only this message, the free grace of God in Christ, that can take even the most well-intended but nevertheless selfish efforts to be selfless toward other people and turn you into somebody who doesn't need that to feel good about yourself or to pad your resume or to have a sense of meaning and purpose in the world, but to do it because you want to from the heart Because the gospel tells you giving your life away, living a life of humility and self-sacrifice is no longer in order to get anything because you already have everything in Jesus. Now living a life of selfless sacrifice and humility is simply giving your life away so that other people might enjoy and know this kind of Jesus. Not just because someone speaks it to them, as important as that is, but that they would experience it in relationship with you. Now, let me give you an example, perhaps, what this is like. What does it look like to to begin to understand that the cross is both the pattern and the motivation for your life? I think, at least for me and for, I think, many of us, the idea of parenting fits this. Parenting is very much a substitutionary act. (laughs) What you're essentially saying is, I will deny myself for these little people who are utterly dependent on me, who sooner or later will disrespect you, (laughs) who will humiliate you, who won't want to be seen with you in public, who will think you are not cool anymore, who have no idea how many sleepless nights you have had, either walking them around the house or waiting up for them to get home. That is a picture of what life looks like when you begin to absorb this grace of what Jesus has done. That's what he's like towards you. Now, how do you... What is this humility look like? How do you begin to practice this kind of sacrificial, humble, self-giving life? I want to illustrate it just by looking for a couple moments at this last section of the story here with blind Bartimaeus. This man who is blind and he's a beggar. He sits on the road, on the roadside, and Jesus and his disciples, they're headed, they've been to Jericho and they're leaving. And as they're leaving, Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road. And this is a story I think would be very easy to pass over until you notice a few things. One, as I'm talking or as you, you reflect on this passage later, just pay attention to how different it is than the disciples. Bartimaeus is, this story is here as a contrast to the disciples. And the reason that I think it's, it's an important story for us to pay attention to is really indicated by the fact that Bartimaeus is the only person who is healed in all four of the Gospels whose name is actually given. That ought to point up to us, this is a story that, that carries with it a significant amount of importance. 
And the key connection I want you to see between this story by way of contrast to the previous section with the disciples really happens in verse 50. After he's been calling out to Jesus and those following Jesus who are are near Bartimaeus uh, say that Jesus is calling for him to get up and go to Jesus, he throws off his coat, he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what? Do you want me to do for you? Do you know that's the exact same question with which Jesus responded to his disciples earlier in verse 36 after James and John say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He says, What do you want me to do for you? Now, what do the disciples ask for? They ask for greatness, they ask for honor, they ask for status. What does it look like to practice humility? We need to look at Bartimaeus. When Jesus here says, what do you want me to do for you? Instead of that question being um, invited from Jesus by a demand for greatness, what does Bartimaeus do? He cries out for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me twice He calls out for mercy. The first thing I want you to see here, to practice humility means you are in the habit of crying out for mercy, not for greatness. But I also want you to see what Bartimaeus asks for. Like we said, it's not status or honor. He just wants to see. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And there's a number of ways we could tease this out, but one of them is just this. What this man wants is to be restored to what he was made to be. He wants to be brought back to normal. He wants to be able to see. And in this story, given the blindness that you see in the disciples, their inability to see this, here, the rabbi, Bartimaeus, really is a picture of what, is it, what does it look like to want to see Jesus, to cry out for mercy, to ask for the help to see him. And here's what we discover about Bartimaeus. He is really a model disciple. He is, in this situation, he is described as a blind beggar. In other words, he shows you what it means and what it looks like To come to Jesus on no other basis than your need, your absolute need. And in the confidence that Jesus can adequately and fully meet it. And notice too, that here we also see what faith is. Remember to hear Jesus says, after he asks Jesus to, to give him his sight, Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. There's nothing about Bartimaeus in this story that's powerful or compelling. He's on the side of the road, blind, and he's a beggar. He's the lowest of the low. The only one who has power in this story is Jesus, who restores his sight, which ought to tell us what faith really is. Faith simply is transferring all of our trust 
in ourselves and putting it wholly in Jesus. Here, a blind beggar is everyone's example, everyone's teacher. Bartimaeus shows you what does it look like in your need and in your helplessness to transfer all of your trust from yourself and put it all in Jesus. There's a sense in which blind Bartimaeus is in a better place than almost any of us because his life physically and circumstantially matches his utter need and dependence spiritually. And the great danger for upwardly mobile, competent, skilled, educated people is you can forget that. And instead of seeing your great need and dependence, begin to look at your circumstances and your accomplishments and read that back onto your spiritual need. And here, G- Bartimaeus, again, he is our teacher. So wherever you find yourself this evening, what I want you to see here is whether you, you find yourself resonating more with the disciples or more with Bartimaeus, notice that he responds the exact same way to both groups of people. What do you want me to do for you? So let me flip that around on you. What do you want Jesus to do for you? If you could ask him one thing, what would it be? The gospel tells you the one thing you need from him is mercy. The one thing that you need from him is his ransom, his life, in the place of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this story would take root in our lives. We pray that um, the reason that you have come to give your life for our life would revolutionize the way that we view you, the way that we view ourselves, the way we view other people. And we pray and ask that the sweetness of the gospel, the costliness of grace would change us from the inside out so that we would be set free, set free from self-concern, set free from self-protection, set free to seek after the well-being of others every bit as much as we might for our own. Father, would you make it so that we as a church here would grow in grace in such a way that if we weren't here, we would be missed. Father, please help us to repent and to believe and to cry out for mercy and to follow after this example of Bartimaeus. And then discover in doing so your grace and your power that in you we find all that we need. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.